Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. I love it. Honestly, I've never done something like this before, so it's super fun. And if you can partake in something like this, I definitely recommend. What, do you know about this idea of a little a tiny forest or mini forest? I just like the idea of helping reduce our carbon footprint wherever we can, especially integrating tiny forests wherever would be such a cool idea. Okay, there's, there's a voice I recognize in there. Ben, what is going on? Where are you? Yeah, so you're listening to students, and I'm at John Abbott College in Montreal, or just the west end of Montreal, and they are planting what is called a tiny forest. Tiny, okay. How, how tiny? What, what are we talking about here? Yeah, so not like super, super tiny, not miniature, but let's say the size of a tennis court in this case. And when I got there, the soil had been turned over and they were getting ready. And there were dozens of students and staff there. It was a sunny day. Everyone was happy. And uh, they, they told me they planted 600 trees and shrubs in all. And it worked out to about three trees and shrubs per square meter. That is one stuffed space. I mean, people, though, plant trees all the time. So why pay attention to this? Yeah, so this is this is a special way of planting trees, and it's the tiny forest movement, and it's a really big movement. There's these kinds of tiny forests all over Canada. You may have heard of one in your community, and there's other ones in Europe, uh, United States, parts of Asia. But there are also questions about whether this is the best way to plant trees. Like, more trees are good, but should they be planted this close together? Okay, I guess that what I would say about this, Ben, if you'll allow me, is it sounds like it's an idea that's taken root. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thank you for laughing. Okay, I apologize for that. But before we go any further, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? Okay, I'm Ben Shingler, and I'm a climate reporter at CBC. And I'm Laura Lynch, and I do apologize for the pun. This is What on Earth, where we bring you a world of climate solutions. This week, tiny forests everywhere. Ben, take it away. So imagine a normal forest. You know, the kind that takes decades and decades to mature. Forests grow slowly. Seeds blow into an open field. And then gradually, plants start to grow. Well, what if you need a forest faster than that? Like, say you were living in a city or an industrial area without much forest canopy. Then this tiny forest method helps you grow one quickly, like within two decades. Planting all these trees and shrubs close together forces them to grow faster as they fight for light. And because they are small, these forests can be planted pretty much anywhere. In front of a school, in a park, outside an office building, and sequester more carbon faster. Okay. 
Plus, like you heard at John Abbott, they're often planted by community groups, so they get people together. And the idea has caught on. It's become a bit of a craze, not only in Montreal. Tiny forests are popping up across Canada, the United States, Europe, India, all over. And people love them. The experience of planting, it's uh, really uh, a good way of connect with nature. This is Jorge Rojas Arias, one of the people in charge of planting at John Abbott. Uh, everyone here comes out and, and they are really satisfied with their day. So it's a fun way to spend the day outside and feel good about helping the environment. But are these tiny forests a climate solution? Before we answer that, let's see how this idea even took root and head to Japan. That's Akira Miyawaki speaking on a video posted to the Unsinkable Japan, a tourism YouTube channel. This idea all started with him, a Japanese botanist born in 1928. Miyawaki, as he's commonly known, comes of age just as Japan is starting to rapidly industrialize after the Second World War. Factories are pumping out goods, and the country is losing a lot of its forests. But not everywhere. Around Japan's religious shrines, there are still ancient forests, little forests made up of native plants, and those are protected. And walking around those little forests plants an idea into Miyawaki's mind. He sees the tiny forests as a way to resist deforestation and Japan's growing industrial footprint. And in the 1970s, he gets his chance to put that inspiration to work, thanks to the very economic boom that led to so much deforestation. The country passes a law requiring industries to make 20% of their land green. Miyawaki is hired by a steelmaking giant, Nippon Steel, to plant trees at the company's production sites. He works with many companies, like Toyota. Over the next four decades, Miyawaki plants tiny forests at thousands of sites in Japan and around the world. His idea grows in popularity with the help of a TED Talk by Shubhendu Sharma. I'm an industrial engineer. An engineer from India. The goal in my life has always been to make more and more products in least amount of time and resources. He meets Miyawaki in 2009 when he was working at a Toyota factory in India. These forests, compared to a conventional plantation, grows 10 times faster. They are 30 times more dense and 100 times more biodiverse. Within two years of having this forest in our backyard, I could observe that the ground... As the idea spreads, it morphs away from being a corporate project to becoming a way for communities to get together and plant trees. In an essay later in life, Miyawaki describes how tiny forests are a way to both absorb more carbon and cope with the effects of the changing climate. Because he believes these specific types of forests, made up of native species, can better protect against what he calls nature's fury. Things like typhoons and tsunamis. When Miyawaki died in 2021, he had become a kind of botanist folk hero. My name is Fumitaka Nishino. 
Uh, I have a doctor of forestry. Fumitaka was a boy the first time he met Miyawaki, who was a friend of the family. Later, he became the botanist student at university. We talk by video from his home in Tokyo, with the help of an interpreter. He talks about Miyawaki with reverence and holds up photos of them together for me to see. In his favorite, he's sitting beside Miyawaki under a tree canopy. He's no more than 10. So, in this photo, he remembers thinking that uh, Dr. Miyawaki is very, like, a positive, optimistic person, and always thinking about the future. Um, so, he had the thought that this is a kind of person that the world really needs. So, I asked Fumitaka to explain to me how you plant a tiny forest. He walks me through it, from surveying the land, to laying the mulch, to picking out the plants. It's a long and very precise process. Not as simple as just putting a bunch of trees in a small area. Okay, So first you do a vegetation survey, and then you create a recipe for the forest. Most people are unable to do this. They don't have the knowledge to do this. Um, accurate. He tells me how, because these forests grow so quickly, they also give birds, animals, and insects a place to live. And he says he's not surprised they have become so popular, because people are now so worried about climate change. People are finally realizing that we're destroying forests and destroying the earth and we can't live without forests. It's true we can't live without forests. But tiny forests? Because there is a lot going on in this movement. There's the planting trees close together, using native plants and a specific soil composition, and the goal of trying to grow a forest as quickly as possible. So I decided to ask around to see if the tiny forest idea holds up. I reached out to Todd Irvin. He's a Toronto arborist with a company called City Forest. And the, the objective of growing the trees really vigorously is that then you get more immediate returns as far as, you know, sooner they will sequester carbon, sooner they'll provide shade, sooner they'll provide habitat. And I think those are all really good goals. But I, I really think that, you know, that has to be considered that in a very dense urban setting that you know, we have competing objectives. In 15 to 20 years, you're getting into a situation where there's going to be a significant amount of maintenance because you're going to have some of those large trees are going to be shaded out and they will begin to die. Also, he's worried about how the trees grow in such a small space. Really fast-growing trees can have you know, structural consequences to that. And you'll get these really large, quite frankly, spindly trees with very few lateral branches. Then there's the cost involved because planting all native trees can be expensive. And with limited city budgets, choices need to be made. To understand how useful an idea tiny forests are to a city, I meet up with Carly Zeter, a biology professor at Concordia University. We meet in a park near her home in Montreal, which was not too long ago a vacant lot. Right now we are in La Calaloutre Park in uh, the Saint-Henri neighborhood. And the idea of this park was to really try and replicate more of a, a natural system. So to bring in a higher density of trees, to prioritize native species. It's not exactly a tiny forest, 
but shows how trees can reclaim a space. She does research about urban forests and how to keep the city's trees healthy. I think sometimes people see these tiny forests as kind of a panacea for all of our ecological and social issues. You know, we are going to stop climate change and solve heat islands and reduce inequity. And you know, that's a lot to put on a small group of trees in your neighborhood, right? So although I think they probably do bring a lot of benefits to communities, it's really important that we we keep our expectations in check and that we also follow up and see how these trees are doing. We walk through the park and she shows me some of the things that make this park special. This provides a space for people to recreate, for people to connect to and interact with nature. Uh, right now, the trees are obviously quite small because it is new, but you know, I can imagine a decade from now, this is going to be providing significant cooling benefits. Carly says these new ideas are exciting and that studies suggest tiny forests store more carbon than regular tree plantations. But more study is needed. Anything that you're trying for the first time or something new in a city, monitoring is so important to understand how it works in your system, how it's perceived by people in your city, what the pitfalls are that are unique to a particular area, and what the successes might be that are unique to an area. Okay, that's so great. Thank you. It was really good. Back at John Abbott College, the students are wrapping up planting. Chris Levesque is a biology teacher at the school, and his students can't get enough of this. They all tell me planting this tiny forest makes them feel like they are doing their small part to address the climate crisis. I think it's getting attention because it's it's a direct response to the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis, and it's a model that's fairly easy to implement in urbanized areas. We don't need that much space to be able to plant a, whether you call it a microforest or a tiny forest or a mini forest, you need a, it's a small footprint. It's a small area with a lot of ecological benefits. And that goes to the heart of what Miyawaki said. These little forests can have a big impact. But the appeal of these tiny forests goes deeper than that. As he wrote near the end of his life, the forest is the root of all life. It is the womb that revives our biological instincts, that deepens our intelligence, and increases our sensitivity as human beings. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you, Ben Shingler. Of course, it's Ben who reported that documentary. It was edited and mixed by Craig Desson, the CBC's audio doc unit. We decided to go on a bit of a hunt this week, a hunt for winter across Canada, because even as some parts of the country have been buried deep in snow, lots of other places are just way too warm. No snow, no ice. This year, uh, we haven't had any ice. The ice, when it came, it froze up a little bit, then it went away a couple, it got warm, temperature got warm, and it drifted out. So now we got no ice, you can't get out there to go fishing. That's Ralph Isaac. He's an ice fisher from Listigouche Mi'kmaq First Nation in eastern Quebec. Well, in normal climate, in normal years there, the, by the second week of December, second, third week of December, usually there'll be around a foot of ice, if it's cold enough, you know. And as soon as the ice gets here that time in, in December there, the smells come up right away. 
This year, though, Ralph has had to remove his ice fishing hut to protect it from the slush. He says he's caught a couple of dozen smelts all season, when he could usually catch more than that in just one day of fishing. Now, Ralph's not the only one missing out. Seasonal villages of colorful ice fishing huts near Saguenay, Quebec, won't be appearing this year because the ice is too thin there. And across Canada, other traditional winter events are not exactly melting down, but they're not getting the kind of cold temperatures they need. Take the Ontario Winter Games underway in Thunder Bay. Even before the events began, there were concerns about poor snow conditions. Skier Abigail Scamora says what snow there is isn't ideal. I think the snow is going to be harder to ski in than normal snow. It's going to be more like mashed potatoes, as I like to say. It's mashed potato skiing. And in Plaster Rock, New Brunswick, the annual World Pond Hockey Championship was scheduled to begin on February the 15th. Every year, the community hosts more than 100 teams from North America and around the world, but it's been cancelled for the second time in four years. In 2021, the culprit was COVID-19. This time, it's thin ice. Still, some are managing to adapt to warmer temperatures. In the past, folks might remember that we would do the ice carving competition on weekend one, and then we would all sort of cross our fingers and hope that the ice carvings lasted throughout the full three weeks. That's Melanie Bro with Canadian Heritage. It's the federal department that organizes the annual Winterlude Festival in Ottawa. Melanie says she and her colleagues were prepared for anything. So this year what you'll see is live ice carvings that's going to be happening every single weekend. And that adds also to the visitor experience because regardless if you come weekend one, weekend two or weekend three, you actually get to see these masterpieces being built live and in front of you. In Vancouver, people are used to seeing snow covering the North Shore Mountains in the winter. But this year, some of the peaks are brown with only small patches of white. And that's not great for skiers. That's the sound of snow cannons. Cypress Mountain, which hosted some Olympic events back in 2010, has been using them to pump out millions of litres worth of snow to keep some runs open. All of this has some people who love winter worried. Hi, my name is Natalie Knowles. I'm a climate scientist working with Protect Our Winters Canada. Protect Our Winters works with sports enthusiasts, athletes and businesses to advocate for climate change solutions. This is a year in which El Nino is bringing warmer, wetter weather. But Natalie says this El Nino seems more extreme. We're in the midst of climate change and so we're seeing the impacts Um, across Canada. So, you know, a a degree or two of temperature rise can be the difference between the snowy, cold winters that we're used to and ones where that's falling as rain and we're above zero and above freezing. Natalie says increasing levels of emissions will likely lead to even shorter winters, thinner ice, bare mountaintops. But she says the answers are right in front of us. The big thing that can be done is cutting our fossil fuel use and cutting our carbon emissions on a big scale. So um, everything from personal behavior changes that we can make to voting and using our voice and asking our politicians and our business leaders to, to make those larger scale changes. If you've had any events near and dear to you cancelled because winter just didn't show up, let us know. You can send us an email. It's earth at cbc.ca. Okay, take yourself back 
to the fall of 2020. The pandemic, it was in full swing. We were all getting used to the new reality. And it was also Climate Week in New York City. It's normally a huge gathering of people, but for the first time, it was virtual. Zoom was becoming the norm. That's Ina Coleman. She works for a nonprofit called The Solutions Project. It funds community groups in the United States as they respond to global warming. She'd been to Climate Week New York City before, but this year it was different. We were all quarantined. We got to see it in real time because normally this event would be in person and there would be no eyes on it. But logging into those virtual events, she noticed something. What we noticed right off the bat was the lack of diversity, the lack of representation. Most of the people that were on the main stage were white men. And although they do play a part in climate justice, communities around the country who are mostly black and brown have been innovating solutions to the climate crisis for decades. And they weren't really being represented on this big main stage. So we were seeing the movement as very exclusive, and that was something that we knew we needed to change. So how did Ina make change? She co-created a campaign called Black Climate Week. People are not going to take action if they don't feel like they're a part of this movement. And so what I aimed to do was create something where people who looked like me would see themselves as a part of the environmental movement. This year marks the fourth Black Climate Week, and there's an event coming up you can join virtually, and we'll get to that in a moment. But first, let's back up to what happened when Ina's organization drew attention to the lack of diversity at Climate Week NYC by creating their own week. And so when we created it and we issued a press release about the inaugural Black Climate Week campaign, we really put in a call in to Climate Week NYC to let them know that we were doing this because we needed to see more representation. And after the different conversations were had with the producers and the CEOs, they decided to make us their first environmental justice partner in 2021. And can I just ask you, you use that phrase call in. What does that mean in this context? Well, I think people normally say, like, you've got to call people out when they're doing something that you feel is not right. And calling out feels like more aggressive than we were trying to be. We weren't trying to... You weren't trying to confront them? We weren't. It wasn't a confrontation. It was an invitation because we all come from different backgrounds. We all know different things. And so you don't want to assume that this lack of diversity is intentional. And so for us, it was like, hey, we noticed this. Here is how we think we can support efforts for you to make this event more diverse, to bring in more representation. Now, all of this led you to create Black Climate Week in 2021. This year, it's on from February the 19th to the 23rd. What's the goal? So the goal right now has been a lot of awareness. Outside of philanthropy and climate justice as a whole, there are a world full of people that don't really understand what the climate crisis is. And so my goal has always been to show what Black leadership is doing in climate spaces to show the different forms of activism, whether it's through art, whether it's through music, whether you're an on-the-ground activist where you're marching in rallies, or even down to like 
Are you a grant writer that can help these small organizations secure more funding? And really just to celebrate the everyday heroes that are doing this work, sometimes out of necessity, like they were born into these circumstances and have really had to become climate justice warriors to survive. Now, the Black communities and other communities of color are often on the front lines of climate change around the world. And I'm wondering what that looks like in the United States. So, yeah, we have a lot of history of discriminatory practices that result in why these communities are most impacted. So there's things like redlining, which were services were withheld from neighborhoods that have significant numbers of racial and ethnic minorities. And because of this, they were denied things like trees and There's a lack of green spaces in a lot of areas that have significant numbers of BIPOC community members. And even though we contribute the least carbon footprint, we are still the most affected. And that's why this is important, because we can't address climate change without addressing the equity and justice piece of it. And I understand you've actually had that experience in your own life. I have. Yeah, I was raised in the projects in Long Beach, California, and we lived very close to oil refineries, so close that there were an incident. Actually, there might have been two where one of the oil wells actually exploded and we could feel it like it shook our house. And so I've always lived in close proximity to oil refineries and never really understood how it was contributing to things like my asthma. Okay. And as you said, Black Climate Week, it highlights Black-led organizations that are spearheading climate solutions. One example I wanted you to talk about is an organization called Solidarity in Highland Park, Michigan. What kind of work does it do? I mean, Solidarity is giving me a bit of a clue. I think it might have something to do with solar panels. (laughs) Yes, yes. And we love Solidarity. Their vision is to power their neighborhood with clean energy and make sure that everyone has access to affordable renewables. And the reason why this is such a strong mission for them is because back in 2011, 1,000 streetlights were repossessed in their neighborhood due to the city being indebted millions of dollars to a utility company. They, they took their streetlights away? That is, isn't that crazy? I didn't even know that streetlights could be repossessed until I learned about Solidarity. No and kidding. if you think about it, just not having lights in your neighborhood, crime is going to increase. Like you cannot uh, get with your neighbors because there's no light. So you're literally in darkness once the sun goes down. And so instead of them waiting for government and corporate intervention, they partnered, they collaborated with local community members and purchased and installed solar powered streetlights, including Wi-Fi, because that was one thing that was also lacking. Not only were they reducing emissions, but they were creating jobs, strengthening the grid system, um, and they're still advocating for policies at the state level that promote solar development to make clean energy accessible and affordable to the residents. What a great example. Um, Organizations like that are working on clean energy, but it sounds like they're also building the community at the same time. You visited Solidarity last summer, so I'm wondering how important you think that part of the work is. I think it's extremely important. My team went in July um, and we were taken to Avalon Village, which is a city block that they have completely revitalized. I believe they were saying it was at one time considered the most dangerous block in Detroit. And they bought out these houses 
and they've created a sustainable eco village where they also grow fresh produce in the community garden. And they've been able to repurpose abandoned buildings into resource centers that also serve as educational spaces for our children, which is huge. Community is a really big factor in solving the climate crisis. Knowing your neighbors, being able to share conversations, share solutions, just to gather and experience joy is really important to our well-being and the fight against the climate crisis. So but what challenges do these kind of groups face when it comes to keeping their work going? I gather this is not being funded by government. It's not. Um, I mean, there are policies in place and there are initiatives that are aimed toward providing funding for environmental organizations, but there are a lot of barriers to actually getting the money. But the Solutions Project has really been working to just relieve a lot of those barriers from our organizations. We know that we are partnering with the experts. We know that they have the answers to the problems that they're dealing with. And really, they just need the finances and they need the support. You know, you came to this kind of environmental activism later in your career. I'm wondering how that affects the way you talk about climate action with people now. It's interesting. Yeah, I made my way to the environmental justice movement through consulting. And the Solutions Project came up as one of my first big clients. And so that requires a lot of education on my part because you have to know what you're posting about in order to post. And because I am a woman of a certain age, when I was younger, we talked about the ozone layer, but then one day they stopped talking about the ozone layer and I'm like, what's going on? I don't know. And it wasn't until I got to the Solutions Project that I started understanding that it wasn't that the issues had been fixed, it was that the language has changed. And it made the movement very exclusive so that if you don't know the buzzwords and the jargon, you don't know what's going on. I I had a very unique standpoint because they were using a bunch of words that I didn't understand. And so for me, I came with a lot of questions. I was like, okay, if I don't know, and I consider myself to be a pretty smart girl, the other people do not understand what's going either. And there's no way that they can create solutions if they can't understand the problem. And so my goal has been really to educate our audience on what the current state of climate change, climate justice, environmental racism, all of these words that haven't really been used up until the last few years to explain why it is that certain communities are more impacted and us all really working together to combat the biggest challenge that we're facing of our time. So Black Climate Week's main event, it's coming up on Thursday, February the 22nd, and it's a virtual event, as we were talking about at the beginning of our chat. Anyone can register. So um, can you tell me a bit about it and what you're most excited about? I'm excited about the event as a whole. The campaign every year just gets me really excited. And as the years go by, the fact that people are very proactive, they know that Black Climate Week is coming and they they want to be a part of it has always been great. So we have Van Newkirk from The Atlantic is going to be moderating. We also have one of our frontline leaders, um, Naomi from Blacks and Green in Chicago, and Crystal Haling from the Libra Foundation, just to talk about the ways that Philanthropy can step up and support Black-led climate justice solutions. 
um, it's just really exciting. I'm really excited to see how it all plays out. I will be making a guest appearance as well <laughs> uh, with some words from our CEO, Gloria Walton. Is that how busy you are? You can only make a quick guest appearance in there. <laughs> I'm going to say some of the things. I'm going to let I'm going to let the experts talk. But um, it's just been really great that people are supporting this work. And not only do we get to tell stories about Black leaders that we're aware of, but other organizations are also encouraged to educate us on people that we don't know, organizations that we don't know, and solutions that we may not be aware of. And so it's just one big conversation um, during Black History Month to really celebrate Black leadership in climate spaces. Well, who knows? You may have some Canadians in with you this time around. I love it. Let's go. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Ina Coleman, thank you so much for the conversation. Thank you so much. You can register for Black Climate Week's free virtual event. It's called Advancing Black-Led Climate Justice Solutions. And you can search for that on the Eventbrite website. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like... What does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth, where we bring you a world of climate solutions. So recently, one of our listeners, Jerome Wynn in Toronto, had a burning question for us. He writes, quote, While shopping for lighting fixtures in my home, I'm seeing a lot of fixtures that have integrated LED chips instead of using bulbs. How sustainable are these fixtures? On the one hand, they eliminate the need for replacing bulbs. However, once the LED chips burn out, the entire fixture needs to be replaced. From what I've seen, these fixtures last 36,000 to 50,000 hours. Is it better to use a fixture that consumes light bulbs, or is it better to use a fixture that has integrated LED chips, but the entire fixture must be replaced once the chips burn out? Thanks for that question. Our producer, Vivian Luck, is now going to try to shed some light on it. Okay, we'll get to Jerome's question in a minute, but first... Let's compare LEDs, or light-emitting diodes, with the many other light bulbs you can choose from on store shelves. Let's see. This one is an incandescent bulb, 40 watts. Uh, this one here is also 40 watts. It's an LED, dimmable, soft white. Number one, LEDs are a lot more energy efficient. That is, they require less power or wattage to deliver light. You could have a 60-watt incandescent bulb today that would only require for an LED of about 7 watts of electricity. The fluorescent might be uh, 10 watts. That's Gregory Kialian, a professor and the co-director of the Center for Sustainable Systems at the University of Michigan. Greg has done a lot of research on the costs and energy savings of switching from incandescent and fluorescent lights to LEDs. He says one other way LEDs are more energy efficient than those other lights is they give off less heat. You know, growing up, I think my sister got an easy-bake oven that was 
powered up by an incandescent bulb to, to provide the heat for the oven. Um, it gives off a lot of heat. So the LED generates much less heat and provides more light energy for the same amount of electricity than the incandescent. To be clear, incandescent bulbs are the least energy efficient out of all the regular bulbs, like fluorescent or halogen. With incandescent bulbs, about 90 to 95% of energy is dissipated as heat, and only 5% goes into lighting. With LEDs, is the other way around. Also, LEDs last way longer than all the others, typically anywhere from 30,000 to 60,000 hours. And when choosing a lighting system, all of those energy savings matter because the less electricity you use, well, the better it is for your wallet, obviously, but also the lower your carbon footprint. The biggest impact in terms of lighting is really from the energy used for operating lighting. You know, much of our grid in the United States and, you know, in, in Canada too, is reliant on fossil fuels. In burning those fossil fuels, we release greenhouse gases. So we want to minimize, you know, our use of electricity. Okay, now that we've covered the basics of LEDs versus other light bulbs, let's go back to Jerome's question about integrated fixtures, where the LED chips are fixed and can't easily be removed. Now, we've already established that LEDs last longer than standard bulbs, but everything has an expiration date. So unless you go with a brand that comes with replacement nodules, you're going to have to toss out the whole integrated LED fixture eventually when it burns out. The good news is, similar to regular lamps, LED fixtures can be recycled. The process isn't perfect, though. There's, you know, gaps in knowledge how we can do it better. That's Maria Halusko, an associate professor of mining engineering at the University of British Columbia. She spent the last five years or so working with local recyclers and researching how to recycle LEDs more sustainably. Just like with most other lights, Maria says that after you drop off your LED fixture at your local recycling facility, or even at some home goods stores, the different parts get broken down and the metals get separated from the glass and other components. Then the metal parts, like aluminum and copper, they get sent to a smelter to be processed. But Maria says LEDs also have other metals, like bits of gold, for example, that aren't easily recovered right now. This is the biggest challenge, to get those metals out, right? Then they will end up in the landfill. So that part of the recycling process is still being figured out. But Maria says that from a consumer's perspective, Going for an LED fixture is always the greener option. From the energy point of view, absolutely. Like 90% of energy goes into lighting and they last longer, they are more durable. And if taken care appropriately for recycling, I would say that there is absolutely less environmental impact than, than the other lamps. For What on Earth, I'm Vivian Luck. Thank you, Vivian. And as you heard, that story was inspired by a listener's question. So if you have a burning climate-related question of your own, maybe we can answer that too. Email us at earth at cbc.ca. We've got some time now for other climate stories making news this week. 
Natural gas. We've talked about the use of the word natural to describe a fossil fuel before on our show. Now a group of U.S. senators is decrying efforts by the sector to portray natural gas as climate-friendly. The senators call a plan to certify natural gas as better or produced with fewer emissions as a, quote, dangerous greenwashing scheme. They're urging the Federal Trade Commission to crack down on such claims, noting that the gas contains methane. Methane is a greenhouse gas 80 times more planet heating than carbon dioxide in the short term. Staying with methane for a moment, The Guardian newspaper has used global satellite data to reveal more than 1,000 huge leaks of the potent gas from landfills since 2019. Pakistan, India and Bangladesh lead the list of nations with the most large leaks. They're followed by Argentina, Uzbekistan and Spain. Proper waste management can prevent the damaging leaks. A new study published by Nature Communications has tracked the lives of 20 polar bears near Churchill, Manitoba over three summers. Nearly every bear lost weight, nearly a kilogram a day, no matter how much they hunted or foraged for food. The study's authors say the research indicates the animal's limited ability to adapt when there's no winter ice to allow them to find food such as seals. There have been concerns about polar bear populations as the planet warms. And of course, you can read more about climate change in the CBC What on Earth newsletter. You can subscribe to have it delivered to your inbox every week. So I'm here because scientists are not being listened to. I'm willing to take a risk for this gorgeous planet. For my sons. And we've been trying to warn you guys for so many decades that we're heading towards a catastrophe. And we've been being ignored. The scientists in the world have been being ignored. That's Peter Kalmus, an American climate scientist, and he's speaking while chained to the doors of a bank in Los Angeles in 2022. Peter works for NASA, but he's gone beyond his role there, speaking out as a concerned citizen about the climate, protesting, even getting arrested. The CBC's international climate correspondent Susan Ormiston met Peter Kalmus at his home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and she met him as part of a special climate episode of the CBC's Fifth Estate. Susan, hello. Hi, Laura. Why did you want to speak with Peter? Well, science is so much of this story, isn't it? I mean, it was intriguing for us to learn that concerned scientists, a group of them, would go sort of outside their labs and data and their reports to the climate battleground, and it still is. And they would do so on a lot of different levels, including what might some might consider quite extreme actions, like chaining yourself to J.P. Morgan Bank. He works for NASA, which does a whole lot of climate monitoring, but he doesn't speak for NASA. He really uh, divides his day job with his um, activism now. But he told us that he got fed up with reports that weren't going anywhere and probably predicted, as many did, that we would experience the year we've just had, which is officially the hottest on record. So he took a leap and he chained himself to this bank. And he was looking for attention, but also he was looking for understanding that the what he's working on, the science is real. And he got that attention. There was a phalanx of police that showed up and he was arrested. We're going to lose everything. And we're not joking. We're not lying. We're not exaggerating. This is so bad, everyone. 
that we're willing to take this risk and more and more scientists and more and more people are going to start joining us. This is for all of the kids of the world, all the young people, all the future people. This is so much bigger than any of us. You can hear the emotion in his voice there. And, and he's pretty well known. I mean, I know him for his social media commentary. And you can hear it in those clips, which, by the way, were shot and shared with the CBC by Brian Emerson. Peter's painting a bleak picture of our climate future. So I'm wondering what struck you the most about him? Yeah, really interesting person. He's intense, wicked smart. He walks his talk. He lives on the east coast of the U.S., but he works sometimes at the JPL lab in California with NASA, and he takes a train there and back because he gave up flying. Uh, So because of the carbon footprint of that. Um, We were also interested in his take on COP, you know, Dubai, COP28, all the other COPs that have taken place. Um, He said that he would not go to COP anymore because he said it's just a low bar. He said an incredibly low bar, what they're doing there. It's all important to put nations on the same stage and do that. But what they come up with is not going far enough, in fact, very far at all, to solve the climate crisis. So we wanted to hear about that. And he's clearly emotional, as you heard there, about the fate of our planet. And also we asked him about how far does that go? You know, what would you do? And he told us that he would support what he calls nonviolent actions against infrastructure, for example, like disrupting pipelines. He said that that's something that the climate movement needs to consider. That is quite something for him to say, Susan. Okay, let's listen to some of your conversation with Peter Kalmus. When you see a city in Hawaii burn up overnight, or when you see these crazy heat waves in the Pacific Northwest, you know, that we've never experienced in human history, uh, when you see flooding all around North America and China, when you see these crazy wildfires in Greece and Spain, you see ecosystems dying, right? You see coral reefs dying around the world, and you see forests in the Sierra Nevada experiencing unprecedented tree mortality. It's just all of this change taken together, in my mind, uh, and the fact that it's effectively irreversible on any timescales that matter for our lives or for our civilization, it just feels really surreal. And, you know, to be fighting against this And to see it happening on my watch and to know how it's going to affect my two teenage sons and young people around the world, to know that we're in the midst of a sixth mass extinction, um, it just feels like, why? Why are we doing this? We could stop it very quickly if we wanted to, and yet there's very little political will. You're a scientist, so you speak with authority on climate. You do climate work. What was your recent turning point when you felt like more of a reaction to this? Oh, gosh. I think it's been a steady increase. So as the heat gets, as the mean average temperature gets higher, right, as we get closer and closer towards irreversibly, effectively irreversibly crossing 1.5 degrees Celsius, and then we go further and and that, so, and then all these impacts keep getting worse too, right? And more and more frightening. So you get the heat waves and the fires and the floods happening both more frequently and with greater intensity. And then to still see so much effectively kind of public confusion, which is due to, in large part, the fossil fuel industry literally funding disinformation and lobbying campaigns to stop climate action. 
and you write scientific papers, uh, you do your scientific work and it's not helping, you have politicians saying that they're listening to the scientists and they're not because they're expanding fossil fuels, which is the opposite of what we're saying. You just start to get more and more anxious and angry and grief stricken and unsure of like how to make change in society. So yeah, because of that, I started to turn to civil disobedience. And I guess that was probably a really major turning point when I risked arrest for the first time in April of 2022. You risked a lot. You're yeah. a scientist, you have a job at NASA, you have yeah. a family and you change yourself to a bank. Yeah, and, and when I did that, I thought there was an extremely good chance that I would be fired. So it was definitely a leap into the unknown. I didn't know how my colleagues would react. I didn't know how the police would react. But I just was, I tried pretty much everything else up to that point and nothing was helping. <laughs> I couldn't get the message out. You know, I just felt like I was being ignored as a scientist and sitting there watching the planet basically get hotter and hotter irreversibly. The summer of 2023 was on average the coolest summer for the rest of our lives. And that should be terrifying to people. Did chaining yourself to the bank help? I feel that that act of civil disobedience, which was one of the highest profile acts of climate civil disobedience, that has really helped to kind of get climate civil disobedience started around the world. I think it's much more of a thing now. And, and people tell me, uh, come up to me on the street sometimes and say like, you know, thank you for doing that. You've caused me to be a climate activist or, or they, sometimes they tell me I've risked arrest too now because you did that. And again, it's important to, to say that that was part of a global movement among scientists and Extinction Rebellion activists. You know that other people say that that just makes you a irresponsible activist and they dismiss those things. Well, I think the people who dismiss climate civil disobedience, uh, I think they're in denial, to be honest. And the thing with civil disobedience, especially when it's done by a scientist, is it's harder to dismiss. So there's different kinds of denial, right? There's, there's the denial that says uh, global heating is a hoax, right? That's one kind of denial. There's another kind of denial which says like, uh, the current people in power, the billionaires, the politicians, the fossil fuel CEOs, like we can work with the fossil fuel industry, we can do, you know, more electric vehicles. That's, a, that's what I refer to as a sort of soft denial. To, to me, this is, if we don't have a planet, we don't fix any other human issues, right? Like we need a habitable planet. Otherwise, we just descend into chaos and dark ages and it's going to be really bad. So to me, this is should probably be at this point humanity's top issue, having a habitable planet and preserving as much of Earth's habitability as we can. And yet, you know, politicians just keep taking us in the wrong direction. Okay, you can hear his conviction there. He, Peter Kamas is putting a lot on the line to fight for the climate. But Susan Ormiston, did he suggest how he envisions solutions playing out? Well, that's tricky, isn't it? I mean, no one has the so-called silver bullet. But he believes, as many do, that there's no meaningful resolution without reducing both our dependence on fossil fuels and the production of oil, gas, and coal. And as we know, uh, that is not happening in the many countries, including Canada. The production of oil is going up in 2023 and 2024, is projected. Uh, he believes, though, that people really need to see even more that this is a climate emergency. It's that urgent action that needs to happen. The planet's going to get hotter. The impacts are going to get worse. I think 
this is going to become a much stronger conversation. I think the media will start reporting this as an emergency, which will cause the public to start to transition into actually prioritizing solutions, which will cause politicians who are really serious about stopping global heating to be elected. And then we'll start to see a shift away, probably a rapid shift away from fossil fuels that likely surprises us with how fast it occurs once the fossil fuel industry loses its social license. Wow, that's interesting, Susan. The the interview you did is part of a most recent episode of The Fifth Estate out now. Tell me what else you're spotlighting in the episode. Well, as I mentioned, we track, we deconstruct COP28 in Dubai. Why, after 28 years of these conferences, emissions are still rising and so are the temperatures. Uh, So we we look into that. And some of the uh, comments from that are quite telling about the actual process of COP, the UN framework, uh, up till now, not even mentioning the words fossil fuels as a cause of climate change. We also reveal in a um, part two, this very personal and public brawl between Stephen Gilbo, Canada's environment minister, and the Premier of Alberta, Danielle Smith. And we heard about that again this week with Gilbo saying that the federal government would not support money for large road projects in the future. That set off yet another uh, war of words between uh, Alberta, primarily Ontario as well, and the Trudeau government. And we trace it back to these very important things that uh, Gilbo has announced in the last six months, you know, emissions cap and also um, cleaning up the electricity grid. And we walk through how she and he are diametrically opposed and really trying to grab the attention and the hearts and minds of Canadians. And then lastly, we go to this fight I alluded to about people who are going beyond politics. How do you fight um, resistance to climate change solutions? Well, people are going to the barricades, if you will, protests, we've seen that, of course. They're also taking more intense actions, as Kalmus is suggesting, and also they're going to court. They're taking corporations and governments to court, even in Canada. We talk to some of the people who are involved in those court cases, And we meet a woman named Jane Armstrong. She lost her sister Tracy in that heat dome you experienced in the Northwest in 2021. And she became a very reluctant protester, activist, um, in honor of her sister. And her story is very moving and very telling about our times. Susan, it sounds like it's going to be really interesting. I will be watching, and the name of it is Boiling Point Climate Chaos. You can see it on GEM or YouTube. Susan Ormiston, thanks so much for the sneak peek. Laura, thanks for your interest as always. Remember, you can listen to all our episodes on demand at CBC Listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. And that is all for us this week. The show was put together by Vivian Luck, Danielle Piper, Rachel Sanders, Molly Siegel, Matthias Wolfson, and Catherine Rolfson. Special thanks this week to our team of winter watchers across the country, including Nation Isaac, Alex Brockman, Khalil Akhtar, Susan McKenzie, David Ball, Paul McInnes, and Jennifer Chen. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.